Hi, and welcome to Forest for the Future, the podcast series where we look into what is evolving in the world of FSC and in the world of sustainable transformation. Today, we are going to zoom out beyond FSC and look at how we might tackle some of our big global challenges more broadly. This means how do we halt climate change, the biodiversity crisis, the social divide, the injustice in just the seven years we have left. And with me, I mean you and I mean me, because we all have the power to do so, even if we are just plain old, you and me. That is at least the encouragement from today's guest, Solitaire Townsend. Solitaire is the co-founder of the global award-winning sustainability agency for Terra, and she just released the book Solutionists, How Businesses Can Fix the Future. She works with clients in the big leagues, such as IKEA, Google, United Nations, and Lacombe, and she often headlines conferences and events. And now she's also made the time to talk to me, and therefore to you, about what a solutionist is and how you might become one too. So let's dive into the conversation. Hello, Solitaire. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I read your book. And can we start with the first things first? What is a solutionist? A solutionist, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is a solver of problems. So the solutionist is a word that actually already exists. My definition of a solutionist is a solver of the world's biggest problems. What are the world's biggest problems right now? Climate change, biodiversity loss, social inequity. So the solutionists are the people out there fixing the future, finding answers to those big, big questions that we're all being asked. Mm -hmm. And how would one know whether one is a solutionist or not? The very fact of asking that question means that you are. Anybody <laughs> who is thinking, oh, what's my role? What can I do? I'm worried about the world. I'm concerned about this issue. I feel like I should be doing more. I feel like I should be doing something. That's a solutionist mindset. So you're already there simply by thinking about and wanting to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Now you actually need to become an effective solutionist who can make the best change in the world that you're able to make. And that's what the book is for. The book is for anybody who is looking to be a change maker, who's looking to make a difference, who's looking to be more effective, who's looking to even start making a difference in the world around them. Mm -hmm. And how do you then become more effective? Well, the very, you know, the, the, the ancient Greek saying, know thyself, is very mm -hmm. much the first step for any solutionist is to think about what are my skill sets, what are my abilities, what are my gifts, and also where might I be lacking, where might I not be the best person to do something. So in the book, we go into thinking about the three types of solutionist, whether you are an architect, an accelerator, or an actioner or actioneer. Mm -hmm. People have been debating whether it's actioneer or actioneer. So I'm an architect. That means that I think at a sort of international space station level, I, I look at the whole big problem and how everything interacts. I'm a real strategist and you know a big picture thinker. We've got a lot of those in sustainability. A lot of people who are trying to think about how do you put all of these different issues together and how do you bring in policy and economics and culture to, to change the world. They're brilliant. Uh, we're brilliant. I love being um, an architect, but there is some challenges with being architects as well. Sometimes we can challenge to be challenged to bring people along with us. Mm. We can find it difficult to actually articulate some of what's in our head about 
how we think the world needs to change. We can find it difficult to concentrate on just one thing because we can see so many different fixes, so many different solutions. We sometimes go from one to the other without necessarily ever finishing any of the challenges that we have. So that's why it's great for us architects to be partnered with the accelerators. Now the accelerators are people, people. They are the folks who understand that you only get things done by enthusing and activating people to do it. So just being right isn't enough. Just having the evidence isn't enough. Just having the science is enough. You've actually got to understand people's hearts as well as their heads. So the accelerators always start with what it means for people, always start with the human Human aspect and they pull together amazing teams they keep people motivated they're able to find the right words to get people on board and able to understand what needs to happen and the reason why they do that is because they really really care about everybody who's involved in change and they understand that the human factor is the most important in terms of anything happening and then you've got the actioners the actioners are the ones who sit and they're going this is great. Loving this big plan. This is fantastic. What do we do? (laughs) So stop telling me about the theory and give me the practical, give me the stuff that I can action. And again, the actioners are fantastic. Without their completed finishers, without the actioners, nothing happens ever on anything. And we desperately need lots more actioners in the worlds of sustainability and climate. But If the actioners don't have a great plan, if they don't have someone who's thought through the strategy, then they're just going to keep going anyway. They're going to keep doing because not doing something is worse than doing the wrong thing. So you can see how all these three groups absolutely thrive when they're working together. Architects great at pulling together plans. Accelerators great at pulling together the team to make the plan happen. And actioners actually giving the plan done. Whenever I've done this, whenever I've spoken this through and I ask an audience such as those who are listening now to say which one they are, what you find is I say, who are the actioners? So their hands shoot up. They're actioners. They know who they are. Absolutely. Then you go, who are the accelerators? And the accelerators look either side because of course they're people people. So they want to see who else is in the room, putting their hand up and they'll put their hand up. And then I ask, who are the architects? And the architects are like, "Mm, their hand sort of wavers. And they're like, yeah, I want to question the whole paradigm. And like, I've got some thoughts about like your sourcing and that is like if you're the kind of person who's questioning the product you're definitely an architect if you're a solutionist if you want to make a difference in the world understanding what you're great at and the best way you can contribute rather than trying to force yourself into a way that you see other people contributing is really the first first step. We, we have a lot of miserable solutionists who are making change in the world the way they think they are supposed to be doing so rather than actually going with the grain of actually their own gifts and personalities. Mm-hmm. I have a thousand follow-up questions now. <laughs> I always do. <laughs> That is because you are an architect. <laughs> I'm very much an architect. And it also stuck upon me that I read it in your book. I underlined it and put an exclamation mark, which is my sign for something being important. And I, it also struck me when you said it just before. If you're an architect, you're good at thinking big picture stuff, but you really need the other types around you. But then you come to the actioners and they need that really like the detail plan. Mm-hmm. How do you bridge that gap in between? Like I often don't know. I have an actioner on my team and she's always, sure, let's get things done. What am I supposed to do? Is it, I don't know. I haven't thought that through yet. I'm just developing my thinking as we talk here. (laughs) How do you bridge that? It's a great question. And unfortunately, there isn't 
anybody who's a sort of a bridger. You're either mainly architect with a bit of accelerator or mainly actioner with a bit of architect. Most of us have got a little bit of both inside mm-hmm. of us, but very few of us are all three. What I f- have found over the years is that mature, and that doesn't mean old, it just means people who have done a lot of self-reflection, mature architects have found out how and tactics for working out that plan of what gets done. In the book, I go into the Mississippi mind, which is about being Mm -hmm. extremely clear about where you're trying to get to and very flexible about the ways of going there. One of the things which architects often do is get frozen in taking a decision about what to do next. It's like going, just keep focusing on the outcome, do something next, and if it doesn't work, change it. And actually, if you're working with actioners who are good at getting stuff done, it means you can do that at speed. You can do something, change it, do something, change it, do something, change it, rather than the biggest mistake that um, architects can make is waiting to come up with the perfect everything. Mm -hmm. The perfect big thinking picture, the perfect plan, the perfect actions. Mm -mm -mm. Your job is to know where we're supposed to be going and to keep that very clear and to know what good looks like. You're not supposed to be able to be psychic and know exactly what are the steps that are going to get us there. You've got to get out there and try. And if you're working with great actioners, brilliant. The reason why an action is asking, what should we do? Is they're not asking, what's the definitive thing that I'm going to do that's going to solve everything? They're basically asking, what do we do next? What should we just try? Let's do this. We'll do it. Bang. Work didn't work. Great. We'll move on to something else. Bang. Actions are not scared of action. They are mm-hmm. more than happy to get out there, roll their sleeves up, try to make something happen. And if it didn't work, they'll try something else. So when you've got a really great partnership between an architect and an actioner, it means you can keep really clear on where you're going and you can try lots of things to get there. And if you've got a great accelerator who's involved in that process, what they can do is make sure that the wheels keep turning, that everyone stays happy, that you're having the conversations that you should have, that the lines of communication are open. So what I'd say to you as an architect is be absolutely obsessed with the objective and get much more relaxed about how many different attempts you're going to have to make on how to get there. That's the, the Mississippi Mind chapter is for you. I, I think actually, this is turning into a, a therapy session for me, but I think actually I, I very much have the Mississippi Mind, but let's maybe dive a bit into why is it called the Mississippi Mind? I'm not sure if you've ever been to the Mississippi, but it's an extraordinary place, one of the longest rivers in the world. And the Mississippi starts up in the mountains and it makes its way across half a continent to the Gulf of Mexico. How it gets there between its source and its destination is very fluid. And the Mississippi is notorious for changing its course. Parts of the Mississippi go off into sort of little oxbow lakes, which don't go in anywhere. As silt builds up, as human beings build things in its path, it adapts around them and it flows. So an everlasting objective, very, very clear. It doesn't go anywhere except the Gulf of Mexico. That's where it's heading to. But it will adapt on its way down. And one of the most important things about the Mississippi mind is... Sometimes it goes on a course or parts of it will go on a course that don't lead anywhere, that turn out to just sort of be stagnant and and that that course doesn't make it down to the Gulf of Mexico. Those are called Oxbow Lakes and they're hugely important for biodiversity. And what I love about that metaphor is the fact that there is no failure. If you go on in a meander and it doesn't end up making it down to the Gulf of Mexico. You still have to, the main the main river, you're still on your journey down to the Gulf of Mexico. But that little meander isn't, isn't wasted. Mm-hmm. 
that maybe it will turn into a fertile idea for something else. In sustainability, because the issues we're dealing with, issues of poverty, of social exclusion, of climate change, of biodiversity loss, these are so, so, so important. Doing something that isn't incredibly effective can feel like a monumental failure. It can feel like you've let the world down by trying something that didn't quite work out. The Mississippi mind tells us that no, those attempts, that at the very least you're going to learn from them, at the very most, kind of let that biodiversity grow, let that idea, let that attempt grow, and maybe many years it will turn into something else. About 15, 16 years ago, I tried working with a whole set of the TV companies and Hollywood studios around getting climate change more um, covered in terms of pop culture. So not not documentaries, can we get this into soap operas and into movies? Spent huge amounts of my effort and time, a whole load of energy on organising, and it never went anywhere. And the reason why it never went anywhere is that climate change was still too contentious, it was considered too political, it was too difficult for these organisations to make a commitment to include it. That's a meander. Didn't get me down to the Gulf of Mexico. Now I'm involved in a project called Planet Placement, where we're doing exactly that pulling together guidance and training for script writers and showrunners on how to include climate and sustainability and storytelling naturally and how just people how people talk, how people engage, how people act on screen. If I hadn't have done that meander a decade before, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And that makes me curious because for me, that yeah, it does. It does sound like something where you were saying, "Oh, didn't happen." But what is your north star? What is your goal as a solutionist? What is it that you are striving for in the end? The impact that you want to have? I have two. So one is what I want for the world, and one is what I want for me. So for the world, I want to make the Anthropocene awesome. I want the Anthropocene is the proposed name for the geological era that we're in, which is the age of humans. Human beings are leaving such an impact on the planet that it will be shown in the geological record. Like eons hence, you'll always know that there was a species like humanity here because the lead in our petrol, the radioactive fallout will be absolutely visible in the rocks going on for eons. The Anthropocene is widely considered to be a terrible thing. My objective, what I want, is for us to go, well, if this is the age of humans, if we have become so powerful, so impactful on the world, we get to choose whether that's a negative or positive one. It does not automatically have to be a disaster. We could make the age of humans something that was good for all humans, which is currently not. The age of humans does not serve all humans and to serve the rest of life on Earth. So this could be a good thing. That's a big, 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 big objective. A crazy big <laughs> yeah, objective. That is an arg- That's what I said. That's that's an international space <laughs> station. That's a James Webb telescope level of, of architect thinking. And so I have a much more smaller, more humble objective for me personally, which is a life well lived. I know there's no chance I will get to see that outcome, even if it happens. I'm about to turn 50. By the time I'm 80 or 90, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, we will be at the worst point of climate change. There's no way to avoid it. We've already got that locked in. So even if we do manage to make the Anthropocene awesome, even if my actions in a very small way contribute to that happening over time, I will never get to see it. That's hard. So instead, I want a life well lived. 
I want to do the things that I think and I believe could make a difference. And I want to feel that I've done my very best, even if I never get that external validation. And I learned that mindset by looking at change makers of the past. Most of the suffragettes, they never got to vote. They spent their lives campaigning and in service of um, universal suffrage and um, uh, women's access to vote, and they never got to do so. Most of the civil rights movement, the leaders of the civil rights movement, they never got to see the first black president. Being a change maker doesn't mean seeing the change in your lifetime. The world owes, does not owe you validation of your actions. You are a solutionist because the reward is in being a solutionist, not in seeing whether any of it worked. That's how I stay optimistic. The future is for me to serve. It's not for me to see. Mm -hmm. Does that ever get challenging to preserve your positive mentality? The honest answer is it used to during my 30s, my 40s. I've often had very dark nights of the soul around sustainability, around the future, around whether humanity was worth saving, <laughs> these kind of questions. Then when I read and looked into this this history of these amazing change makers you know we always think of them as having this extraordinary strength almost this superhuman ability to keep going in the face of challenges and what i realized is that almost all of them had put themselves in service of a future that they weren't going to see and that mm -hmm. that that for them the reward was being a good person since i had that revelation since i felt that it's been very easy because the future is no longer my responsibility. It's not my job. I don't feel better or worse about myself, depending on what the outside world is doing, whether what I do is seen to work in my lifetime. My job is to keep going and to do the very best that I can and to serve the future in the very best way that I'm able. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see why. I can also see why it's a difficult thing to accept that you are not going to see the results of your work. Is that because you're an architect that you are able to sort of just give up and say, well, it's fine? Or would all three types, you think, accept that as that default? So I suspect that archetypes get much more existential angst about the overall global impact of what they're doing. And so why this mindset is very, very important for architects. Accelerators and actioners do get a lot more immediate feedback because of what they care about. So accelerators care about whether people are motivated, engaged, happy, enthused by what they do. You can tell that. That is on a human time scale. That's on mm -hmm. a day by day. If they've got close, supportive, warm, exciting connections and human relationships, if they're working in a team which is motivated and trying to do great things in the world, they're going to feel validated. And actioners think about whether the action's been done. Did it work? Did it happen? Did the next one work? Did it happen? Did the next one work? Did it happen? They're not trying to calculate the overall aggregate impact of what they're doing on a multi-generational timeline. They're thinking about, did I actually get the job done? And so quite a lot of the existential angst that comes with sustainability is for the architects because, of course, they're working on a global and often a multi-generational timeline. What I'm saying is have more of an actioner mindset. Focus on whether you're doing the right things. Measure them get feedback on them, but stop expecting the entirety of humanity, the planet, the future, the biosphere to give you feedback on whether you're doing the right thing or not. That's not how it works. It is big. You are small.
all of this makes me think about the part of your book. So you have solutionists and then you have a, a lot of content as well on society and populations at large. Mm. And and one of the things that really struck me were some of the stats that you pull in there on on the fact that that 20% of young people think it's too late to fix the climate crisis, that 85%, which for me is staggeringly high, are actually unhappy at their work life. Yeah. Is it even possible for us to to sort of start this positive mindset movement and and get things on the right track? I'm incredibly sad that people are feeling that dissatisfied with their work and that anxious and fatalistic about the future. It is, however, a much better state of affairs than people being unaware, comfortable, just sort of noodling along. Mm -hmm. What we've got at the moment is a pressure keg building up of worry, anxiety, dissatisfaction with the way that the world thinks, all which is very justified. What we have to do is engage young people in what are the solutions. We have to engage everybody in what the solutions are, because otherwise what that pressure keg is in danger of exploding, which isn't good for anybody. But what we want is to look those problems straight in the eye, acknowledge and validate them and go, yes, this is bad, but these are the answers. And um, one of the other things which you'll find in the book, of course, is the fact that people know a great deal more about the problems than they mm -hmm. do about the solutions. We've done a very good job now at scaring the bejesus out of everybody around, particularly young people, around what's going on accurately and absolutely the truth. We haven't done a good job at telling the story of what we've got to do about it. That's a pretty shitty position to be in, which is you're all going to die. Unless, and we forgot the unless bit, unless we do this, this, and this, and this. And one of the things which, of course, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, have been extremely clear with us is that there is an unless, that there is a set of clear, doable, scientifically viable, we've got all the answers right now that we need things that could be done. Mm -hmm. But how do we then motivate them to do that change? Because it's true. We all know we need to fly less. We need to eat less meat. A lot of no-nonsense actions in reality. But how do we motivate them for the change? So those no-nonsense actions are some of the hardest actions. So changing your own behaviors, as we all know, like the list of behaviors I would like to change go far beyond the environment. There <laughs> are many things <laughs> I'd like to change about my behaviors in terms of, you know, how much time I spend on social media, how much uh, sugar I eat. Now, behavior change is valid. We also know that from the IPCC that uh, sociocultural change could uh, save 5% of demand side carbon rapidly. So this is a gigaton saving that could be made very quickly. We also know that those behaviors are much easier to change if you're part of a group or community changing them. Mm -hmm. So if you and your friends, if your workplace, if your community, if the people that you live with are making those changes at the same time. I always remember when my little sister went vegetarian uh, when she was about four and how incredibly difficult that was for her until the whole family <laughs> changed and ate a lot less meat or no meat at all, at which point it became very easy. So that group, family level, community level behavior change is much easier to make than personal change. And of course, biggest behavior that you have every day, the massive one, the huge impact that all of us have is what we do for work. So what you actually do for a living, what you spend 
70 to 90 percent of your waking hours per week doing has a much 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 bigger impact than anything that you do in your home so that is the behavior that we're also focusing on and i'm seeing that one of the biggest biggest responses to the solutionists has been young people searching for what they're going to do for a job and the solutionists helping them navigate and make decisions about what that is because whenever we talk about about behavior change we forget that that's the biggest behavior is what you mm -hmm. do for a living and what is it that they find then in the book in the solutionist what is it that that gives them so one of the things which a lot of young people thought is that they needed a to go and get a job in sustainability with a job mm -hmm. with a sustainability job title. What they've realized is, and in fact, actually there's a, this young woman, her dad is a CEO of one of the big um, uh, packaged companies, you know, the, mm -hmm. the beauty and um, personal care companies where we're all using their shampoo and body wash. She, her dad gave her a copy of the book because she was sort of floating after university about what she was going to do. And her options that she had was maybe she goes and volunteers at an NGO. She's got a wealthy father. Maybe she'd be able to do that. Or maybe she would get a junior position in his company in sustainability, you know. And actually what it did is it opened her up to all of the industries that there were out there. So there's a whole chapter called Hope is a Business Plan of all mm -hmm. of these different industries, all these different types of businesses from precision fermentation to digital twins in built environment to what we're doing in the cultural sector. And what instead of going the very obvious ones of I've got to go and be a volunteer in a charity or be a sustainability job title in a business, what she's actually done is gone and worked for a small business a startup company that is working in one of the industries, um, in her case, in the built environment. She's working on a digital company, the built environment, working that's doing incredible work around energy efficiency in um, in buildings. And so what that made is she could just go and get a normal job, but a normal job in an exciting industry. That's one of the things that I didn't anticipate the book was going to do, is give people a list of industries and businesses to go and look for jobs in. <laughs> I suspect that over time people will pull together those lists of possible jobs that you can do. Mm -hmm. And the joy is that we know that from analysis that LinkedIn has done, the jobs in more sustainable industries and the jobs in sustainability are growing at an incredible pace and there aren't enough people for the jobs that there are out there. So it's a perfect serendipity there's many more young people who are interested in doing work that matters and to feel that the work that they do is having a positive impact in the world and there are many more of those jobs available so hooray hooray and it also sounds for me like you gave her permission ship to actually follow her heart instead of following her bad conscience of i ought to do something in the world and the fact that You know, her, her dad was really concerned that it would take her longer to buy a house. Maybe she wouldn't have quite the standard of living that she had going up, that he'd worked so hard his whole life to provide for her. And I think that's another thing which is happening. The definition of the good life, I think, is changing for people. Mm -hmm. And having the big house, having the big car, having the nice standard of life, having being able to go on the all-inclusive holiday three times a year. For a lot of young people, they have a different definition of a quality of life because, of course, having that life requires you to work <laughs> 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And actually, a lot of young people are saying, well, I'd be happier with a smaller home, perhaps without a car or just to hire a shared car occasionally, perhaps to on a four day a week salary rather than a five day a week salary and following my passions. That's a much more sustainable way of living 
than working 80 hour weeks in order to be able to afford the high impact lifestyle. And I think that that's, that's not coming from I want to live in a more environmentally sustainable way. I think that's people looking at their parents and going, I don't think that was a trade off that was worth it. I'd have preferred to have a smaller house and less stuff and more time. Mm-hmm. But let's imagine that I am now that young girl and I start working in a company and it might be the startup sounds like they're already there, they're already on a sustainability path. But what if I start working in a company or I am already in a company where they're not that concerned about sustainability? How many people would I have to convince inside that company to actually make that company tip? and to get them to care about sustainability. Like, what is the task ahead of me if I'm in a dead-end job and I actually want to make a difference in the world? 25%. (laughs) So, again, there's there's literally a chapter in the book where I go into what tipping points, environmental tipping points, sort of the loss of the green ice sheet, et cetera, would be terrifying. Social tipping points can happen really quite quickly. And there's a lot more evidence that shows in terms of an entire population or a business or a community, how many people do you have to get on board to be able to create a tipping point where things begin to happen? So it's about 25%. That's 25% of the board, 25% of the management team, 25% of your colleagues. There's quite a lot, it's a quarter, mm-hmm. but it's not everybody. In the book, I give a lot of strategies about making the case for sustainability activity. Um, I'm not shy of the commercial aspects of this, of the money that you can make, of the incredible entrepreneurial opportunity of the trillions, in fact, uh, 4.5 trillion per year that is available for action on this. One of the things which we're very aware of is that over the last decade or so, the rules of business have changed. The accepted, the comfortable, the anticipatable things with the pandemic, with changes in governments, demographic change, that there's a lot of stressful things happening to businesses. If you can turn up in a company and say, hey, I've got some of the answers. If we're more sustainable, we'll be more resilient. If we're more sustainable, we'll be more innovative. If we're more sustainable, we'll connect better with new consumers. That's absolutely a justifiable way to make a difference inside a company. The young woman that I was speaking to, she has gone to work for a company that is absolutely focused on the commercial value of making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Let's say again, she was now in that dead end job. Maybe it's a different, it's a different girl who's stuck in a dead-end job because she was lucky, the one you talked to. I I have another friend who's in a dead-end job. From where we started and you were talking about the archetypes and and the architects and the actioners and, and the accelerators, how do you start that journey? Like, do you start that on your own, just trying to build that stuff? Or do you have to look across from the outset if you are that young person sitting somewhere in a company? I think it's the old proverb, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good idea to find other people that you're working with who feel the same way as you do. It's probably not that difficult. Um, Human beings like to talk to each other. You will probably find that there's others who are feeling the same way. So being able to have that support network is absolutely key. But towards the end of the book, what I do is really push folks to say, what do you want to do? Pick the couple that would be most fun. Maybe it's a book club. 
a sustainability book club that you invite people to every Tuesday afternoon and you bring some pizza and people turn up to talk about sustainability books. Maybe it's a deck that you put together around sustainability that you tell people. Maybe it's actually you do something outside of work and you go and be, uh, you volunteer, you offer to be a trustee. I give a whole list of things and I ask everybody to go through that list and pick the one thing that would make them happiest to do. Not the one thing with the biggest impact, not the one thing that is most urgent or important to you. What is going to make you happy? This is quite an unusual conversation in sustainability. What would make you happy if you did it? But if there's one other thing that I've discovered over, I'm now well into my third decade of working in sustainability, of of action and activism, and I do what makes me happy. And there's no way I'd have been doing it for the 25 plus years, 27 plus years I've been doing it if I didn't enjoy it. You will burn out if you martyr yourself to stuff that you feel you should be doing and don't want to. So I've had people cry when I've told them that, that you have permission to change the world in a way that serves you and makes you happy. In fact, you have to. If you don't enjoy it, you will be horrible to be around. (laughs) You will be incredibly miserable and you will burn out. Um, Trust that things which you believe need to happen but you would hate to do, trust that other people are doing it. Do you know, I don't go on marches. I've got a mental health issue, which means I find crowds very difficult. For a lot of people, going on marches about sustainability, going and doing the big activism moments, the big activism days are really important. And there's something showing up, being visible, absolutely crucial. Um, And so I did them when I was younger because I thought they were important, even they made me miserable. And even though I had to have days of recovery afterwards, I also tell people, go if you think it would be fun. Don't mm-hmm. go if you think you'll be miserable. Do something else. Do something which makes you happy and makes a difference in the world. There's a wonderful TED talk by um, uh, Dr. Ian Elizabeth Johnson, which I would thoroughly recommend, where she has a Venn diagram around sort of like what the world um, needs, what you've got skill sets on. And then the third bubble is what brings you joy. And uh, that is absolutely the way forward. A lot of people listening will be nodding or thinking yes, and then they will continue doing things which don't make them happy, but which they think they're important. But I hope I might have lodged a little seed in your brain that at some point you start deciding to do, making a change in the world in a way that makes you happy. I can completely recognize it. I can't count the amount of times I've been asked Shouldn't you be leaving FSC soon? It's if you ever need to go anywhere with your career. I've been told multiple times you ought to be start moving from FSC because I've been with FSC for nineteen years, and you know what? It makes me happy. Exactly. So why would I go? <laughs> I, I don't need any. I, I don't have a need for anything that's more. And it's not like it's not changing job, but it's this is where I'm happy. And FSC is amazing. The work that you're doing is incredible. And if you're doing incredible work that makes a difference in the world and you're happy, hang on to that with both hands. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I actually like to touch upon a bit in one of the things that I know I've read your previous book as well. The The Happy Happy Hero. Hero. Yes. In this book, you really advocate that one of the things that's very important for for companies is to stop putting themselves in the position as a hero and start putting the consumer into the position of a hero. Can we just talk a bit about that? 
I do a lot of those speeches. In fact, actually, it's probably the speech that I get asked by brands and businesses to give the most. It's one of the biggest and hardest changes that companies can make. It's not easy because it comes from companies spending a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of challenges, a lot of internal decision making, lots of arguments in order to take the decisions to make a change and then wanting to get credit for it. So wanting to get credit, reputational credit, wanting people to clap them for what they've done. And so they go out there and they make these big claims. And that's where greenwash comes from. There's a certain amount of malicious greenwash out there by very clever people who are attempting to manipulate the public debate on topics. Oil and gas companies especially, they work with advertising agencies and PR agencies deliberately to maliciously change and manipulate. The vast majority of greenwash, however, is not malicious. It's essentially mistaken. It's companies being proud of themselves for having taken some very difficult decisions and wanting other people to be proud of them. And then how they communicate that and how they attempt to seek that well done from the public comes across as greenwash. Even if it's not technically greenwash, even if you haven't actually broken the nation's rules, it can still come across as greenwash to the public because you're boasting. Turn that on its head and go, everything which you do as a company is in service of your customer. That's be it a consumer, being another business. If that's an absolute tenant of business is that you're there to serve your customer. If you forget that as a company, you're going to stop being a company pretty soon, let alone anything else. Everything you do as a business is in service of your customer. So that's your sustainability as well. So your sustainability you're doing in service of your customer because your customer feels worried, concerned, excited, desires more sustainable, is worried about being unsustainable. So you are following her lead. So rather than talking about what you've done, talk about how this product helps your consumer live a more sustainable life. How are you serving her in her objectives to be more sustainable rather than expecting her to applaud you. It sounds like a small nuance. It's actually a massive transformation. So I've got one company that I've been working with who has taken all of their carbon reductions that they've made over the last year, divided them by the number of consumers that they have, and they're basically going to tell every consumer how much carbon she's helped save. So literally, it's nothing to do with them. They're not the hero. They didn't make the difference. They're gifting all of that to their consumer. Everything which they've done is by and on her behalf. That mindset makes it much less likely that you're going to greenwash Mm -hmm. because you're not attempting to manipulate. You're not attempting to aggrandize. You're not being hubristic. You're not being boastful you are in service. Thinking about like the FSC and thinking about how companies communicate that they are using FSC products. Two ways you could say it. You could Mm -hmm. say, we are buying 100% FSC. That's all about you. Versus, thank you for buying 100% FSC. That's all about the consumer. So it's a very small difference. Either look at us and how amazing we are for buying FSC versus look at you and how amazing you are for buying FSC. There's lots of debates about whether we should say consumer or not. But if you're Mm -hmm. a business, you probably use the term consumer. So let's use that terminology. It's saying thank you to your consumer for her choosing to buy FSC is much, much, much more positively received by consumers Mm -hmm. rather than by saying, look how amazing we are as a company for buying FSC. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also a way of enabling her 
to be a solutionist, regardless of which type she is, because that's how she can either activate all of her friends to buy the same or actually put actions behind all of her intentions or actually think your product and your solutions into the bigger picture if she's an architect. Exactly. Make her part of it. She's Luke Skywalker. She's the one who's going to save the world. You're Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're there to help, advise and support her. But she is the hero. Her choices are what enable you to do what you do. If she, does, if she doesn't buy your product, if she doesn't engage with you, you don't exist anyway. It's not a mind trick to say that she's the hero and you're not. It's absolutely true that mm-hmm. she's the hero and that you're not. Every time she buys a product, for whatever reason why she's buying it, the fact that it's FSC or has got FSC materials within it, she deserves to be celebrated and thanked rather than asking her to celebrate and thank you. That's the wrong way around. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. I'm almost getting towards the end of our time, but I got curious when reading your book, you're giving the recipe for how people can start a movement and can really start making change in the world. And that got me curious because as you said, the book is all about me and not about you. What are the next steps for for you? How will you use your (laughs) own advice to start a movement? What is your plot? I've got lots of exciting things which we're doing with Futera. We're working more with the entertainment industry uh, in terms of, as I said, getting sustainability into mainstream storytelling, into reality TV shows, into soap operas, etc. Doing lots of work on business models and thinking about how can we transform business models so companies don't need to sell stuff but can sell experiences instead of radical dematerialization. All the stuff that's in the book, really. I wrote the book as much for me as I did for anybody else. I'm super <laughs> excited about about some of the solutions and answers in the technological answers, the financial answers, the built environment answers, I'm interested in agriculture, interested in culture culture. But the part of the book that I'm going to really be working on most myself following having written it is the bit on self-care because Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole section about how you look after yourself whilst you're trying to make a difference in the world. Once you start on this journey in a big or a small way, whether you're doing small things in your home or whether you're trying to create a new organization or new movement, whether you're going on the occasional march or whether you're leading a sustainability organization, you have to look after yourself. And I suck at it. I'm terrible at it, which I do admit in the book because I realize that friends and family would read this book and go, Solly? you've written a section on self-care and balance and looking after yourself. And so in the book, I'm very open and honest about the fact that I wrote that section as much to learn myself about how to have a more balanced, healthy way of working and living. That's my little personal objective going forward is to make more time in my life for things which don't make a difference to anyone except me. Oh my <laughs> well, it is important as well if it does make a difference to you and helps you take care of you. I'm just going to say, Lily Cole, the actress and activist, I interviewed her for the book when she was on her way to a funeral of a dear friend who'd been an environmentalist. And so she was very open emotionally and thinking a lot about feelings um, and about life itself. And I asked her about self-care and I asked her about looking after ourselves while she does this. And she gave me a quote that sort of struck through my forehead and straight down to my heart, which was, what's the point of trying to save life if we're not enjoying ours? And that really, really struck me in terms of part of being a solutionist is to enjoy the life that you have. It is quite fundamental, but it seems like there's a circle 
in this conversation that leads back to the permission slip to choose what makes you happy and then work from there. So if you were to give one piece of advice for the listeners of this podcast, beyond, of course, going out and buying your book and reading it, (laughs) what would your best piece of advice be for them? My best piece of advice is after listening to this podcast and buying the book is to stop. Just stop. Don't do anything. Don't do your email. Don't make a list of things you're going to do. Don't think about your role in the world. Go and take five or 10 minutes. Go for a walk. Look at the sky. Have a nap. Take a moment of being a human being and a deep breath. And then come back and be a solutionist. Come back and focus on the answers. Whatever answer makes you happy. But just take five minutes, 10 minutes right now and do nothing for a little bit. That concludes my conversation with Solitaire, which you could probably tell from my tone of voice is a personal hero of mine. I can only urge that you go get her book if you want more of her wisdom and more details about how you might become a solutionist if you are not already one. I for one smiled and nodded and underlined and made exclamation marks all the way through. And before I end this episode, here is one line from the book that I smart particularly over. She writes, I promise you, we may be racing against Armageddon, but we can still choose to make it an awesome adventure. And with those words, I hope that you will go choose your adventure wisely. You will choose one that makes you smile and makes you itch to solve. I know personally what my adventure is, but before I go solve some of the first roadblocks for that adventure, I will follow Solitaire's advice and take a break. I hope you've enjoyed this more outward-looking episode. I know I did. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC and the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future.